Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Phil Goldfeder in D.C. at this moment. So uh, we will uh, unfortunately not be hearing from him this week. But uh, I got to tell you, the political news out there is so immense, it's going to be tough to cover in just one show. I mean, it's... There's just... I'm kind of dumbfounded by the whole situation. I talked last week and I said, well, we should not be shutting the de- the government down over a policy issue like the wall. I understand you have a difference of opinion and that doesn't mean you should turn around and say, okay, we're going to shut the whole government down because we disagree about a policy issue. And it's kind of only gotten worse in a sense is that it's the... Both sides are kind of afraid to leave their tribal positions, right? Democrats, Republicans, kind of like the country. People say, okay, you're on that side. You're on that side, and we can't possibly ever find any common ground on this. If you want to open the government, immediately you're not for border security. I don't know how you get to that logical conclusion. If you don't want to open the government, you don't care about Americans going without paychecks. Now, the idea that we would shut down... The government and actually jeopardize our security in certain sense. And, and think about it. We're kind of trying to achieve a goal here, right? We're trying to achieve a goal, which is enhanced security on the southern border by not paying the people who are patrolling the southern border uh, and not paying the people who, like the Coast Guard, who are in the water, not paying the people who are and the Coast Guard that's patrols by air and by sea, uh, the border, uh, the, the, the oceans and the uh, rivers and those, those, board, those border areas. And we're not paying the people who guard us at the airports or, in theory, you know, doing security checks at the airports, the TSA. And we're not going to pay the Secret Service. And we're not going to pay others that are engaged in homeland security activities and operations in order to augment our border security. Now, I know that the president ran on this, and I know that this is an important issue for many Republicans. And in fact, as we talked about last week, the polling shows that as a single issue, this is actually at the top of, this is the top issue in many Americans' minds. It means it pulls at the top. Now, we're talking talking about the 20%, but if people are asked to list their top issues, right? So you take 100 people, you ask them to list their top issues, right? Some people might say jobs, some people might say taxes, some people might say uh, foreign policy or Syria or those kinds of things, immigration and the border comes in in the mid-20s, actually one of the highest, healthcare, right? So this is a single issue. This is coming the highest. That does not mean that the majority of Americans want a wall necessarily. They don't. Doesn't mean that the Republicans are winning the PR battle in this case. They are not. But unfortunately, the negotiating style, I know that the president wrote the art of the deal, and I know he he talks about himself as this negotiator. This negotiation is not going anywhere. And unfortunately, when you get to a negotiation and both sides just, instead of coming towards a middle or at least come towards a spot within their zone of mutual agreement, it's only gone the other way. So much so, so much so that the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, effectively kind of 
well, rescinded. I don't know if she rescinded. I don't know if it was offered, right? But the State of the Union, always at the end of January of every year, the president gives the State of the Union address, and it happens in the House chamber. So therefore, it is the domain of the Speaker of the House. And in that domain... Uh, the and if you if you if you recall if you watch this the beginning the big pomp and circumstance you have the sergeant at arms announces Mr. Speaker or Madam Speaker would be in this case the President of the United States so meaning that you're not going to the Senate you're going to the House which is has enough room obviously to accommodate everybody and the Nancy Pelosi took the tack of say well maybe the President shouldn't deliver the address to the nation, to uh, his State of the Union address in person. There's no requirement that the speech actually be given. It actually only means that it be submitted to Congress. So she took that step. You know, she's trying to show the same toughness, I think, publicly that the president uh, also is showing and, you know, being an effective foil to him, and you know Schumer is much more of a deal maker, um, but Pelosi comes across as tough, and I think that's what people want, and that's the image that she wants to project. At the same time, she blames security issues for this, right? People aren't being paid. We can't. The government's all in one place, so therefore, it's unprecedented security measures. We shouldn't have that. It's too expensive, you know. The problem with that argument, she should have just said nakedly, this is a political thing, right? I don't want you coming into our place, giving a speech, you know, it's going to be similar to your Oval Office address last week, and uh, that's just going to be, you know, we don't want that right now. If the government shut down, don't give the State of the Union, and kind of be more blunt about the political, because when you turn around and you blame security... On it. And then all the security experts, meaning the Secretary of Homeland Security, the head of Secret Service, everyone puts out statements, we can protect everybody. And I have faith in the American law enforcement that they can, in fact, protect everyone. So when you do that, you kind of put yourself up to be contradicted and then show by extension that it is nakedly political. Now, if you think about it, uh, and, and actually, I should just... You know, many years I attended the state of the state in Albany, and Governor Cuomo moved that address from what was a cramped assembly chamber, but a the ornate and traditional and wonderful assembly chamber into what by into the Albany Convention Center, or maybe not the Albany Convention Center, the Empire State Convention Center, which is in the concourse level of the state capitol in Albany and I'll point this out in a second, is that the... Why am I talking about this? Well, the point here is that the governor moved it, and everybody said, well, he wanted to accommodate people, give more room to people to attend. And yes, there are a lot more people in there, but it's a very sterile environment. It's a truthfully and pretty awful environment for the state of the state, I think, compared to what it was in a much more traditional and ornate room and people were standing around and you know people there was a gallery on top and it's just beautiful pictures and beautiful visuals but the governor did it in a much more you know pedestrian type of uh, venue but the point here was that he got to control the environment he actually determined who was invited whereas the assembly used to do that 
he got to determine where everybody sat as opposed to the assembly used to do that. So there were a lot of things that the governor did by doing that, you know, in the name of having more room. You know, politicians do that. They have an ulterior motive, but they couch it in a different way in order uh, to get their point across. Now, what happens as as what what's happening here is that each side is jockeying to kind of control the environment, to control the political environment. And you have uh, what we've seen, interestingly, is a lot, uh, a, a kind of disappearing Mitch McConnell, which is interesting. Uh, I think he is a little bit fed up because Mitch McConnell has always been the guy, kind of the go-to guy for stability and making things run, despite you know some some partisanship and a hard nose edge and a, a, a reputation as a skilled guy. But McConnell has always been that guy, kind of the rock, the steady rock there. And it's kind of fallen apart around him. And he hasn't been out there. Kind of, He's just saying, I won't bring anything to the floor unless the president approves it. And I get that, because why do you want to be undermined once again by the president? They thought they had a deal, and then it was, this is the end of December. The president had agreed, and then at the end, with Ann Coulter, Rush Limbaugh, etc., that was pulled out from under him. And he just wants to, you know, move along, keep the government running. Yes, achieve some goals, but there's a lot of goals to achieve in the United States other than just creating a border wall. So when it comes down to it, folks, the shutdown should not be used as a negotiating tactic. It's not part of a negotiation to say, okay, well, we'll just, uh, yes, you can walk away from the table, but to say, well, we're going to stop everything that we're doing. We're going to cease providing the services. We're going to cease paying our workers, but we're going to force them, in many cases, force them to work anyway. That's bringing a whole nother aspect of it, of the, that's not part, to me, that's not part of the legislative process. That's not part of the process of making laws in Washington. Fulfilling the responsibilities and the duties of the government and fulfilling your oath of office, if you will, is n- not, is, is kind of the prerequisite. That's the baseline. And the bottom line is you have to be willing to come to an agreement. That's what divided government is all about. As I said last week, and it hasn't really changed. I don't understand which strategist, which strategist on the Republican side. I mean, perhaps it's just the whoever the 2020 campaign feels that this is a good rallying cry for the Republican base and for the president. And I think there is some aspect of that. The thing is, is that there is not a perpetual campaign. And Trump has rewritten the playbook. Donald Trump has rewritten the playbook with regard to politics. Uh, but I think he is a unique individual who is able to do that. It doesn't work, and it hasn't worked. We saw that in 2000 in the midterms. It hasn't worked for everybody else. And he's rewritten that playbook, but in a sense, he has been on that perpetual campaign, never moved to the center, never moved to, I want to say the center, because it's hard to know exactly. He's kind of rewritten that coalition as well. But he never moved to beyond the base to try and bring in other voters on issues. Um, maybe he doesn't see that. Maybe his campaign doesn't see that. Maybe they're not interested because they feel that they still have a path based on the coalition they put together in 2016. And perhaps that's it. 
Okay, Fast and Furious, there is a bunch of other news out there. And number one, uh, and it's hard to know every time Rudy Giuliani goes on TV, but I think it's worth mentioning exactly what he's going to say and what he means when he says it. But gave an interview last night and talks, says, well, there may have been collusion from the campaign. I'm paraphrasing. I don't have it exactly in front of me. But there may have been collusion in the campaign with Russia, but the president didn't collude. Now, he is only the lawyer for the president, and he's not has no responsibility to anybody else. But that's kind of a startling admission. Because when the president and others have gone in front, they say there has there was no collusion with Russia. Or they say, well, we were too incompetent, incompetent to collude. We couldn't even do anything ourselves in the campaign. I don't know. I don't know how to unpack that. And you have that against the backdrop of the president nominating uh, Bill Barr to the uh, as attorney general. And in the hearing, you know, essentially says, well, I'm a friend of Mueller and I'm going to let him continue and he's going to be able to do the right thing. And he's gonna be able to give, you know, to. And I don't think it's a witch hunt. I can't imagine the president Trump watching that, which I'm sure he was, was all that pleased with that statement. And to pick on some of the other absurdities that you had the unfortunate tragedy yesterday suicide bomber from isis blowing up uh, uh killing four americans in northern syria at the same time mike pence is giving a speech that vice president mike pence is giving a national security speech to american ambassadors from around the world in which he says that isis has been utterly and totally defeated and we have totally defeated them and they have capitulated. the caliphate is dead etc you know it's I, be, I think the caliphate is, is dead. I mean, ISIS has definitely been decimated, and and tremendous credit should go to the administration for, for making that happen and to the United States military for making that happen and degrading tremendously ISIS. But as far as, like, you know, dead, let's not poke them and provoke, you know, guerrilla warfare is a lot easier, obviously, than holding territory, and terrorism is even easier than that. And, you know, ISIS at its core is really just a terrorist organization, another terrorist organization and unfortunately we are pro- we are not going to combat or defeat the scourge of terrorism i mean well that's you know it's a uh, unfortunate thing about this world but it's unlikely to happen very soon and i don't necessarily blame this administration for not doing that um you know terrorism is what it is uh and then, you know, another front just with regard to uh, what's going on in Washington. Uh, Steve King, Representative Steve King from uh, Iowa, gave an interview last week in which he basically said, I don't see anything wrong with white supremacy, white nationalism. When did that become wrong? And so sort of that language. And, you know, he says he claims he had a point, but, you know, this is a guy who went to. Auschwitz this past summer, I believe. And then from Auschwitz went to meet with neo-Nazi parties and politicians in Central Europe and in Austria. And, you know, apparently the guy just doesn't get it. It doesn't maybe... But this is a history history of anti-immigrant remarks. And fortunately, at this point, I mean, the the... Reaction was very swift, except from the president, uh, who says he didn't see it, uh, which I, you know, hard for me to believe. I wish he would comment on it. But from the House leadership, 
but first the Republicans, and uh, not just in the House, but also in the Senate, give credit to them for saying that these comments are out of bounds. And then there was a rebuke on the House floor, bipartisan rebuke for Steve King. They stripped him of his committee assignments, and many people called on him to resign, which he should. If you don't understand what the what the problem is with calling with white supremacy and why that is a danger and a cancer on the public and on our society, then you really don't belong in Congress. And let's contrast that for a second with Rashida Tlaib, who is the newly elected congresswoman, a newly elected Palestinian-American congresswoman from Michigan. Now, I only say Palestinian-American because I want to give it context because that's what some people are doing and saying, well, now, she has, number one, taken Israel off the map of her in her congressional office, but more shockingly, uh, she tweeted about the dual loyalty of her, some of her colleagues who passed pro-Israel legislation. Now, if there is a classic anti-Semitic canard out there in the public realm with regard to public policy is that Jews and supporters of Israel are not, don't really have a pro-American agenda. They only have a pro-Israel agenda. And their loyalty is not to America, but it's to Israel as if supporting Israel is not in the best interests of the United States. And that is something that has infected both the far right and the far left. That's something that Pat Buchanan would say on a regular basis, a far right political personality. Now, this is a sitting member of Congress who, instead of debating the merits of a certain piece of legislation or a certain action, she's chosen to question the loyalty of her colleagues and to discredit them for not being pro-American but for being pro-Israel as if you can't be both and you have to serve. And this is you know something that we found in Europe over the years. This was you know the Dreyfus trial and this was how the Nazis and others delegitimized the Jewish people. And that's what's also going on in England right now with the Labor Party and Jeremy Corbyn, and trying to delegitimize those who are pro-Israel. And you know, sometimes it's couched with saying, well, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm anti-Zionist. Sometimes it's said, well, we don't, I'm, I, we're not saying Israel, just Israel's policies, or it's just the Lee Hood government, or it's just Bibi. But the idea that you can't be both pro-American and pro-Israel at the same time and support Israel for reasons that are entirely legitimate within the constitutional oath of office is a horrible and tragic thing in my mind for a sitting member of Congress to do. And she should be rebuked. It shouldn't be a situation, well, she's only one opinion. There's only one or two out there. This is not a big voice within the Democratic Party. That dual loyalty allegation is every bit as bad in my mind to endorsing white supremacy. I don't think that we have to necessarily have a meter and saying, okay, well, it hits 80 on the meter. 
then you know then we do then we have to condemn you know but this is only a 74 or a 73 this is bad and we see it coming from both sides folks there's anti-semitism and there is a threat to our political rights and to the Jews from both sides, from the far right and the far left. Fortunately, Republicans had the courage to condemn it this week. The Democrats did, but not enough. And they have to stop coddling anti-Semitism on the left. Now, what's happened with the Women's March is actually encouraging. And I'm going to end with this this week. Is that the anti-Semitism or the anti, and we saw it on full display this week, where uh, Tamika Mallory, one of the leaders of the Women's March, who is has been an out, who has been a admirer and an attendee of Louis Farrakhan, <coughs> probably excuse me, the leading anti-Semite in the United States, uh, and she has been a follower of his, and she went. She went on The View, and she was challenged by Meghan McCain to whether she supported Farrakhan. She says, well, that's not the way I talk. It's not this. But she never at any point condemned Farrakhan. She refused to do it. And when you, you imagine sitting on, t- on national TV and being asked about David Duke and not turn around and say, this man, he's out of bounds not just I don't like his language, but he's out of bounds, and we reject anti-Semitism. We reject racism in all its forms and anybody who espouses that. Why is that so difficult for people to... Why is it difficult for them to realize? Why is their chip missing, their radar missing, to understand the why the people in the Jewish community and elsewhere, all decent people, feel... That you must, you have to condemn, if you want to be for women's rights, you actually have to be against bigotry in all its forms, no matter who it comes to. Otherwise, you're just morally bankrupt. Otherwise, it's just politics. You're just leveraging something for a political purpose. And this whole intersectionality argument and, you know, has kind of taken over and it's the oppressed peoples everywhere, but except for the Jews, the Jews are not oppressed. They're part of the oppressors. And, you know, we've, we've unfortunately seen, uh, and Tablet did an excellent, Tablet Magazine did an excellent expose on this, on how members, leaders of the Women's March subscribed to the view that the Jews controlled the slave trade and the Jews were leading anti-black um, people over the years and have been responsible for racism in this country, which is just an absolutely incredible... I mean, that is another thing, is that that's one of those Farrakhan-sponsored books, The Secret History Between the Jews and the Slave Trade or something along those lines. Again, you know, the Jews are responsible for all that is evil and bad in this world. So we have elections coming up in Israel. We have a public advocate race coming up in New York City. So there's never a downtime for politics. We have now the shutdown stretching and stretching and stretching. And unfortunately, no end in sight at this point. Uh, I'll end on this note. I did think that it was comical or caricaturish 
for the president to give the Clemson football team fast food, McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, pizza, when they came to the White House. You know, I think the idea of giving people very cheap and unhealthy food because they're pro athletes, there's something that goes along with that. If people keep themselves in tip-top physical condition are generally not the ones sitting there eating fast food. Now, the, the president is known for loving the fast food, so in his defense, that's probably what he wants to eat, so he had a good excuse to eat it, but he was taken, to, uh, I mean, he was absolutely killed on like ESPN and others, Michael Strahan and, and Stephen A. Smith and others uh, in the sports world just felt that this was, wow, you know, really uh, stereotyping pro athletes who generally are not going to be sitting there. Uh, gone are the days of, you know, stacking burgers uh, very high. Um, nutrition and diets are a very big part of that. And, you know, I think the president sometimes needs to get into the 21st century as far as some of these things. So that's it for this week here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Michael Fragan signing off. Uh, hopefully we'll have Phil Goldfighter back next week from his hiatus. Uh, stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.